Hey, what's going on, everybody? I'm Armand Lee, and thank you for listening to the Quarterly Report. We've got a huge show. NBA free agency has been amazing in just a few days, so I'm going to bring in Jay Michael from CSM Mid-Atlantic to discuss and break down all the moves. Also, Manny Pacquiao and Joe Horn left the boxing world kind of uneasy with the result this past Saturday. I'm going to tell you what my biggest issue with the fight was and know the score and the outcome isn't it. All that and so much more, but let's get things started with our first topic this week. Like I just said, NBA free agency has been crazy, right? We're only a few days into it, and the money, once again, is flying hands over fist. There seems to be a little bit more sanity with the NBA players and the NBA front offices this season compared to last offseason. But that same sanity hasn't materialized for NFL players, and that's where we're going to start this week. Every year, it seems, there's a football player or many football players who get in their feelings this offseason, in the offseason, when they see all these huge contracts in the NBA being given out. You know, it's one thing to see LeBron, Kevin Durant, or Steph Curry making a lot of monies. But for football players, it's something completely different when you see Otto Porter, J.J. Redick, and Drew Holiday getting 20-plus million-dollar contracts a year, annually. However... Each year, it annoys me because football players, if you know any of them, any of them who've played on the highest level, right, college and obviously pros, they will tell you that they feel that they're the greatest athletes in the world. They feel that they are the best. They are the pinnacle of athleticism. Then if that's the case, pick up a basketball because Sammy Watkins, this year, you were the guy to – Go out of your way to let everyone know how silly and how foolish and how quote-unquote unfair it is that football players don't get paid like NBA players. So Sammy Watkins, because you want to talk about other people's money without knowing your own league's dynamics, I got a friend who got something to say to you. Man, sit your ass down. Sammy Watkins, sit your ass down, man. Every year, every year, there's a football player talking about how Man, it's crazy that we don't get paid money like the NBA players. Or, man, the NBA players making all this money. It doesn't make any sense. Stop focusing on what the next man is doing. Y'all, like I said, every NFL player that I've known, right? And I haven't known many, but I've known a few. They always tell me that they're the most athletic players in the world. Well, if you got a problem with the way NBA players are getting paid, stop playing basketball. Like, this ain't new. We all know that football players, number one, don't have guaranteed contracts. Number two, don't have kind of the, the, the massive year-to-year intake that NBA players get, right? Unless you're a quarterback, you're not making $20-plus million a year. You may, if you're a star, if you're like a star defensive player, star receiver, you may get like a large contract in number, but because they're not guaranteed, The only thing that really matters is the actual guaranteed money that they give you up front, right? So you know all this. This isn't something that just happened. So if if y'all are as athletic as you like everyone to think, go ahead and change sports, man, because nothing's going to change. Y'all will get cut whenever organizations and teams feel that you can't produce anymore and you won't be able to bring any of that salary with you. And in the NBA... Even if you are, whenever LeBron signs his next contract, and if it's a four or five year deal, we all can understand that on year four and year five, he's probably not going to be the same player. But he's going to get paid the most of his contract once once that deal is done. That's just the way the game is. And number two, why is it that NFL players and members of the media, NFL players, members of the media, and fans, We always target the NBA player. We don't ever say anything about baseball players. Baseball player makes crazy money. Crazy money. You understand? Everybody I know who follows the Miami Marlins, they all hate Giancarlo Stanton. They can't stand him. They understand the the power and the flash and the, the star, you know, the star kind of appeal, the charisma that he has. But they all say, oh, man, he's just he just gets up there and swings. He's just a hacker. 
doesn't get hit for contact. It's either a home run or if the ball dies on the warning track. He's just not a, a he's not a, a great player. And what he's making, he signed a three hundred million dollar contract. Prince Fielder, he signed a what was it two hundred? I forget the details, but over two hundred million dollars, and then got traded instantly. You understand, like. Bryce Harper is talking about possibly signing a $500 million contract. Now, Bryce Harper is a superstar, so that makes sense. And he's young, right? But baseball players make crazy money as well. But it's always focused on NBA players. And NFL guys, man, chill out. Stop. You know what you signed up for. You know before you even get into the NFL that your bodies, you know, are going to be thrown in some type of crazy collision that the quality of your life from a physical standpoint will never be the same and you don't make con you don't make guaranteed contracts so sammy Watkins, this should come as no surprise but sammy said it this past offseason after god knows how many players said it last offseason and guess what next year next offseason there's going to be a rack of other guys saying the same damn thing so as a preemptive strike and as a warning shot to Sammy Watkins, once again, my man, Angry Man, has a few words for you. Man, sit your ass down. Man, sit your ass down. Slim. I can't stand other people always in someone else's pocket. You know, let J.J. Reddick live. Let Otto Porter live. That, you know, if y'all so great athletically, y'all should be getting the same type of money in the NBA too. But you're not. Sammy Watkins can't stay healthy. Talking about the next man. You know, Sammy Watkins, you play for the Buffalo Bills. Y'all can't even get to the playoffs. Chill out, bro. Man, I can't stay. I don't know about y'all, but when someone is talking about what the next person should or shouldn't be earning, and they're not doing that, that same – like, Joe, you need to chill. That jealousy, boy. Jealousy is a mother, boy. So if you got that in you, man – you know, angry man got the same things to say to you too. Now sit your ass down. I don't like that, Jay. Anyway, that's our first topic this week. You know, like I said, we've got a lot of NBA offseason, you know, topics and coverage to discuss. Jay Michael will be me with me shortly this week. But for all things NBA, boxing, NFL, and others, make sure you follow me on Twitter. I'm at Armon, A-R-M-O-N underscore Lee, L-E-E. Also, follow the show quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E -E show. We have a lot of fun topics and discussions online. Engage with me. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you disagree with me on, and it's a lot of fun. All right. All that's out the way. First quarter is done. We're going to switch things up and step into the squared circle for our next topic. Are they from, are those officials from Australia? Are they from Australia? I mean, what did we just see? I it's a, a horrible decision. I don't have horrible. a home address yet. So you're horrible. saying. I need, I'll find, let's find their home address. <laughs> Send them some meal. Something's wrong with this decision. It was bogus. That, my friends, was the very uh, reasoned and measured response from Saturday night's fight between Manny Pacquiao and Jeff Horn. Broadcast on ESPN, I believe for Manny's WBO, Welterweight Championship. Now, many of you all know Pacquiao lost in a controversial decision. And, of course, that led to, you know, the mob mentality, everyone screaming of robbery and the fight was rigged. Teddy Atlas, who clearly, clearly was inebriated, somehow managed to stay upright and fight off his stupor and, and on national television say the fight was corrupt. Um, Y'all, you all know I'm a huge boxing fan. I remember I watched the fight on Saturday and a few things stood out. Number one, that fight wasn't good. You know, I was, I was amazed really at the number of people who before the decision was, was revealed were raving about the fight. Like, oh man, this is a great fight and boxing needs this. This is exactly what boxing needs, yada, yada, yada. That fight was um, a showcase, if you will, of two fighters who, despite fighting in a championship bout, are nowhere 
nowhere near the top of their division. You know, Manny Pacquiao is, look, he's the future Hall of Famer. There is a lot of things about Manny Pacquiao, both in and mainly outside of the ring, like Floyd, that are deplorable, that are just really awful. I'm not going to get into that here. If if you're curious, you know, we're in the information age. Google is free. You know what I mean? But, um, you know, he's in the ring. He's he's an all-time great. But watching him on Saturday, he was sloppy. He was reckless. He wasn't disciplined. Joe Horn has no business being in a championship bout. He's just not that skilled of a boxer. I mean, he's been on the he's been on the canvas three out of the four his last four fights. <laughs> um, and somehow Manny, who is known for his power, couldn't couldn't put him down, which speaks to a lot of different things, and it gives credence to, you know. I don't even know if they're just whispers anymore. At this point, I think it's fair to say Manny Pacquiao was doping <laughs> in his A-Day because there's no way you can do what you did a few years ago and then look like this against a guy who has no business being in the ring with you. But that's neither here nor there. Number two, the outrage of the outcome. You know, Horn won, and, you know, you heard Stephen A. Smith so eloquently say that the he wants the addresses of the judges. Look, there was one judge I think had it 117-111, which is crazy. That fight wasn't wasn't nearly that one-sided in any direction. But the funny thing is, if you listen to the fight, and you know, on Saturday I was like, you know what? I was I was more convinced that it was a toss-up. I rewatched the fight, and I've I've backed off that stance a bit. I think Manny should have won. Uh, seven rounds to five, but a few of those rounds were close. A few of the rounds that I gave to Manny were close. So if I can admit that some of those rounds were close, sure, absolutely, I, I can see how it went seven five in either way because rounds twelve, that was a close round. Um, round round eleven was close. I mean, Manny tried to put Horn out in round nine, and he almost did. But he also punched himself out, which is another thing. Manny Pacquiao punches himself out against Joe Horn in the ninth round. Come on. This is the guy who, you know, seven, eight years ago was throwing God knows how many punches in the 12th round against Joshua Clotty. So there's there's just a lot going on here. But the one of the things about this broadcast, and, you know, I don't have the desire to debate the outcome. Look, if you, you can watch the fight if you want. Don't get swayed by public opinion. You know, the, the mob mentality that's going on in our society and a whole bunch of different aspects is just crazy. It's overwhelming. There's nothing more frustrating. And I don't want to be like the smug boxing guy. You know what I mean? Like, I love boxing. It's my second favorite sport. You guys know that. And, you know, if other people watch it and enjoy the time they watch it, that's dope. But one thing that was extremely frustrating, and Stephen A. Smith is kind of like the, the pinnacle of this, are people who don't watch and who don't, you know, I don't want to say understand because that sounds pompous, but, you know, who don't watch and don't really feel the sport and have, you know, a good grasp of some of the intricacies of the sport. Making these huge declarations after and it's like a robbery and this is awful and this is what's wrong with the sport. Number one, I can never say a, a, a fighter was robbed if he didn't look well, if he didn't fight well. There's no one who could watch that fight and tell me that Manny Pacquiao fought well. So if he didn't fight well, how can he be robbed? You know, I think again, I think Manny won, but that's seven to five. And a lot of those rounds are tough to score. So if I think Manny won seven to five, I can't then be like, oh, how could he lose when two of the three judges scored it seven five horn? You know what I mean? Other than round nine. It wasn't like Manny was putting in work in any other round. And he punches himself out before he even gets to the championship rounds. 10, 11, and 12, you could easily score all three to Horn. So if you're telling me that I'm not crazy for giving the final three rounds, the championship rounds to Horn, like I wouldn't be crazy to do that. 
You mean to tell me Joe Horn couldn't have won three of the first eight rounds? Come on. And we all agree he won the first? You know? Come on. Come on. But I digress. Because the biggest issue I had with the fight, beyond the fact that the actual fight wasn't good, despite everyone saying it was, beyond the fact that everyone after the fight got in this mob mentality saying how Manny Pacquiao, who didn't look good, who did not fight a good fight, who somehow managed to, to punch himself out against a guy who had no business being in the ring with him in a title fight, despite all those things, everyone saying how he was robbed. The biggest problem I had with the fight was the broadcast. And I think, I remember when I was in high school, uh, my PE teacher, shout out to uh, Mr. Hughes, uh, he told me when about boxing because I've been a boxing fan for a while. And he was like, the, the key is sometimes you got to watch the fight on mute because the commentators, not saying they're doing so deliberately, but they can influence how you watch and how you interpret the fight. You know, they have, the, I mean, they're literally talking you through the fight. So if you are not conscious of this, you can easily be swayed and not even knowing. And the biggest thing I can say to that in support of that theory is Teddy Atlas. Teddy Atlas, again, I don't know how much he drank, but, or how much he uh, ingested something, but it was a lot. You feel me? And shout out to Teddy Atlas because, you know, he he's he's a legit boxing guy, you know. And if you know any of the story of Teddy Atlas, you know he's not one to play around with. You know what I mean? But he's he was doing color commentating. He was color commentating. Teddy Atlas talked more during the fight than the play-by-play guy, right? So throughout the entire fight, Teddy Atlas he was scoring rounds to Pacquiao when Pac like round eight. I thought was clearly a horn round. And somehow Teddy gave that to Manny. And another part of their the broadcast booth was Teddy. Um, I'm sorry, Tim Bradley. Tim Bradley, who has been in, who has fought Manny Pacquiao three times, and despite having a win against Pacquiao, he has lost all three times against Pacquiao. Um, but throughout the fight, Bradley is saying, "Yo, this fight is close. This is a close fight." So while Teddy is dominating the microphone talking more than the play-by-play guy, Timothy Bradley, a guy who has recently fought, recently been a champion, for some reason, he could only speak in like eight-word sentences around. And all he would ever say was, hey, Jordan is, Horn is doing well, this fight is close. Or, you know, this fight is pretty close. You guys, Horn is, uh, you know, making a good case for himself. And that would be it. So if the fighter is telling you, yo, this fight is close, and... The color guy who's talking as if he's the play-by-play guy is throwing all these wild, you know, um, claims out and completely ignoring all the good shots that Horn is doing. It can influence you. So at the end of the fight, Teddy Atlas has dominated the microphone. You're under the impression, okay, well, yeah, this this is a clear fight. But it wasn't. The fight was close. And that's my point. You know, the fight was close. And you got to understand, like, just because Manny Pacquiao's CompuBack scores, you know, were higher, that doesn't mean that it was a clear one-sided fight. You know, they score rounds after each round. So Manny dominated the ninth round. That was the best round of the fight for any fighter. So he could have outlanded Horn to such a degree in rounds eight, seven, and four, you know, that it gives you this larger, larger lead than you think. And these are all problems, right? As someone who loves the sport and and is happy to see the sport kind of get back in slowly into the national conscious. But the problem is this first shot at top rank boxing on ESPN was such a catastrophic, just abomination. It was so awful from the production, from the crew, the outcome, the actual quality of fight. Top rank has two legit. You've heard me talk about Terrence Crawford, but you've heard me talk about Vasily Tenko, Lomachenko, excuse me. These are two of the best fighters in the world, and they're going to be on ESPN. Now, they don't have the Q rating. They don't have the name that Manny Pacquiao does. But if you watch that fight on Saturday and you're not a diehard like myself, you're going to miss the opportunity to see some of the best the sport has to give, 
and ESPN is doing a disservice. Like, you literally have two of the best five fighters in the world on your air in the upcoming weeks. Stephen A. Smith, before the fight, he's talking about he, he doesn't know anything about Jeff Horn. How can you have someone? The, yeah, I know he's the face of your, your, your network now, but he comes out and without any, any shame will tell the whole world, I don't know. I haven't done my homework on a fighter. The co-headline, the guy in the main event. And this is this is what you put out for the world when you've got two of the best fighters coming out weeks behind. This bothers me so much, and it, and it happens all the time. And, and I'm sensitive. You know, I'm a boxing fan. But I also feel like this happens in the NBA as well. You, you'll hear guys on your local sports radio dial or on television who aren't really informed, and you can tell it. You can tell the guys who know what they're talking about and the guys who don't. I, if I were to sit here and talk about baseball, you would know clearly I have no clue what the hell I'm saying because I don't. You know what I mean? I pull no punches. Likewise, you can see a man or a woman on television talk about boxing, talk about basketball. It is clear they don't know what they're talking about. So why have them up? The whole fight, the whole, the whole entire spectacle on Saturday was a joke. And the fact that Manny Pacquiao lost and so many people, and the irony is not lost on me, mind you, that Manny Pacquiao and the legions of Pacquiao fans are crying about being robbed. Oh, that's rich. Because Manny Pacquiao has benefited from several, several uh, questionable scorecards in fights far more significant than this ESPN broadcast. Don't believe me? As Juan Manuel Marquez. So ESPN, I'm excited that, you know, that there's definitely buzz. Uh, and, you know, some people subscribe to, you know, um, there's no such thing as bad attention. So we'll see. But make no mistake, ESPN has some work to do because you've got two of the sports best coming up in a few weeks. Treat it as such, you know, treat it as such. All right, guys, that's the second quarter. I'm Armand Lee, and this is the Quarterly Report. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe to the show on iTunes. All you got to do is search for the show Quarterly Report. That's Quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R hyphen L-E-E report. Click the icon and hit subscribe. And while you're at it, make sure you rate and review the show. Let me know what you like, what you don't like, and some things you would like to hear me talk about. All right, one thing that I absolutely will talk about for a halftime this week is the return of the sports wankster. And this week, it absolutely coincides with the debut of a new sport league that just started this summer. Take a listen. That's right. It's time for the newest installment of Sports Wankster. And this week, the honor goes to none other than Corey Maggette. For those of you who do not know, Corey Maggette had a lot of hype coming out of Duke. He was one of the first players to leave early. In fact, he left, I believe, after his freshman year, after being named All-ACC freshman team. Michael Jordan famously told him that he needs to stay in school. He wasn't ready to come out. But Maggette did come out after one year and was a lottery pick. Now, Maggette had a successful and, you know, long NBA season. Never lived up to the hype, but few do. He was a good NBA player, played for over a decade. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing to sneeze at. But he is this week's sports wankster, not because he's not in the league anymore, but because he was part of the Big 3 debut, the new 3-on-3 basketball league. And on its opening day, opening game, Corey Maggette suffers a leg injury. Had to leave, lied on the floor for several moments, yet somehow managed to celebrate the win with his team after Deshaun Stevenson hit a game-winning three. Again, it's too hurt to play, but wasn't hurt enough to celebrate. My, have the mighty have fallen. So, Corey Maggette, you, sir, are this week's sports wingster. Damn, homie. In high school, you was the man, homie. What the fuck happened to you? Yeah, man, like, 
the big three league, God bless them. I think it's a great idea. And I hope that it, you know, sticks and can be like a, a summer tradition moving forward. But man, these guys, the injury is going to come fast and furious. I don't think, I mean, Jason Williams, white chocolate, he got hurt the same day. So y'all man, stretch up. You know what I'm saying? Cause slim basketball is not basketball is a young man's game. We don't need to see y'all, you know, walking around with canes out here, taking L's on FS1. But anyway, that's halftime. It's back to business. We've got two quarters down, two more to go. We're going to finish up strong, starting with our third quarter, CSN Mid-Atlantic Zone, J. Michael. Third quarter. He is one of the best basketball minds that I know. Fun guy, J. Michael from CSN Mid-Atlantic, the Wizards beat reporter. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at jmichaelcsn and check out his podcast alongside my guy Chase Hughes. It's called Wizards Tip-Off. You can find that on iTunes and wherever you get your uh, podcast. Jay Michael joining us this week. Jay, what's going on, bro? Pretty good, man. The free is keeping me busy, man. Just, uh, looking forward to summer league right now. I need to go uh, unwind in 120-degree heat in Las Vegas. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine just how exhausting free agency is and this is the second year in a row the Wizards have been kind of big players last year it was Brad and they wasted no time re-signing him and now this year Otto is the focal point um as things stand right now July 5th at the time of this interview Otto Porter has signed an offer sheet with the Brooklyn Nets now by all accounts all reporting including by yours your you yourself uh Washington has said that they will match any offer for Otto um, so that's where things stand. I can't imagine Washington letting someone as productive as Otto Porter walk for nothing. So is that where we stand? Are the Wizards basically definitely going to re-sign Otto and just kind of bring the game back for another run? Yeah, I, I can't. I, I don't know if anything has changed in that regard. If it, if it has, it's not to my knowledge. Um, they've been pretty steadfast about their position on Otto for months. So... Well, it shouldn't be anything that's a surprise um, that comes out in a match. And $106 million, look, they, they knew somebody somewhere was going to come out and offer him that money. So, um, you know, I, I see both sides to it. You know, I know there are people who think that he shouldn't get it or or say that he doesn't deserve it based on certain factors. And, you know, they have they have some legitimate points. And, and, and then other people think you're a fool if you let him walk. And I think that's a valid argument, too. I think it just kind of depends on how you view how you view Otto? To me, it's, it's this question: If Brooklyn views him as a guy who can take them from the bottom of the East into making them a playoff team, then they're making the wrong decision. But if they view him as a guy who they can add as a building block to help them get to that point, then it's the right decision. Um, so, it, to me, I think it depends on what angle that you come from. But with, as far as it goes to the Wizards, if you let him go, it is similar to Brad. If you let him go. You know, the question is, what are you going to do to replace him? And right. does it make you do, you, do you take a step forward or take a step back, depending on what decision you, or better yet, instead of taking a step forward, do you at least hold your position rather than taking a step back? I think at worst case scenario, the Wizards are another 40, has a, have another 49-win season ahead of them. Uh, but that's probably better than, uh, you know, a 41 season outside of the playoffs. So it, it, it just kind of, you know, it depends on what you think your goals are, uh, where do you think signing out of where it puts you in, in the picture for Brooklyn and for Washington. And, you know, if you can replace him, if you don't get him, who else? And right. that's why Brooklyn's offering him $100 million, and that's why I believe the Wizards will match um, match that. I, 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 would, I would say to you, though, that I think a sign and trade would be a great option if this deal is still on the table from Sacramento, because right. I think you can get some tangible pieces from Sacramento if you're the Wizards to help build you going forward. But I don't see anybody on Brooklyn who can do that for you in a stress yeah. and trade with those two. So, yeah, I, I think in this case, signing that offer sheet, the Wizards have no other choice but to match it. I've said this several times, and from the outside looking in, uh, just as an observer, this is really fun. Like the auto contract and the entire um, – circumstances around it are just fascinating to me like on one hand again I've, i made it perfectly clear i like Otto. Otto's a super productive player he's super underappreciated i would sign him i would sign him at the max however for the people who are hesitant on resigning Otto, especially at this price i get it i understand that as well 
right? The past four seasons for the Wizards, by any metric, right? If you're reasonable, has been has been a success. You know, they've never they haven't had a losing season. They've been to the playoffs three times out of those four years, and each time they've been to the playoffs, they've won at least a round. So that's that's a, that's a success. However, during those four years, they've had this second round ceiling. And they've had the same four core players, right? John, Otto, Brad, and Gortat. Um, so with a team like this, with the ceiling of the second round, they're basically saying, okay, we're going to just give everyone a raise other than Gortat and somehow expect a different result. You know, that's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So I understand why people don't want to max Otto. It's a weird position for the Wizards to be, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and that's the thing, too. Like, you know, do you mix it up to the point where, you know, it, it requires a, a big gamble. And right. I think, you know, I, I, based on what you've seen recently from the Wizards, they're not a, the, front, the front office isn't going to gamble. Right. They have a, they, I think, uh, Ernie Grunfeld has got more of an, uh, is more likely to take what he considers a sure thing or the bird in hand uh, yeah. rather than the other way around. I mean, he's not, you know, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to roll the dice too much at this point and let Otto walk. I mean, again, unless, you know, the same the same issue with Brad last year. Though it, it's a little bit different, but I think it does tell you, though, where the Wizards, how they view John Wall and Brad in relation to Otto. Absolutely. Brad came up. They, they negotiated immediately and got that out of the way because they knew there's no need in front like you, you're thinking about it or you might not do it. They knew they were the core guys that they needed to build around. And with Otto, even though they may eventually end up giving him this money, by allowing him to float around on the market and see what his value was and maybe see if there were some other options that tells you that they truly see him as the third wheel or maybe even the fourth wheel. If um, you, know, you know, the way I look at it is I think Otto's the fourth best player on the team, um, definitely offensive player on the team because of his limitations, being able to create his own shot. They don't call isolations for him. They call isolations for Wall Beal, and they'll call it for Marquise Mars to get his own shot because they can get him on most people they want to. Whether they hit it or not is another issue, but they can create it. That's not out of strength. So, I, but I just think that approach, this approach also speaks to kind of where the Wizards see Otto. So just because they're giving him $106 million on a match doesn't mean they believe that, He's on par, in my opinion, with John Wall and Bradley Beal in terms of value. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because it's true, right? When John's contract came up, they actually, they resigned John a year before he hit restricted free agency. They got that out the way super fast. And with Brad, they didn't play around. They signed him as soon. They offered the contract to Max as soon as they could, five years. They didn't play. So it's clear, at least definitely for from the organizational standpoint, that they 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 view John and Brad uh, a level higher or so than they do Otto. All right. Once again, I'm joined by my guy J Michael. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at J Michael CSN. He's the Wizards beat reporter for uh, CSN Mid Atlantic. Also, make sure you check out his podcast along with my guy Chase Hughes. It's called Wizards Tip Off. You can listen to that wherever you download your podcasts. Um, so that's enough with the Wizards. The team that everyone has been look, looking at this offseason has been the Boston Celtics. Um, I guess you would say that they're Washington's primary rival now, especially after their playoff series. Um, Boston has been linked to everyone from Jimmy Butler, Paul George, even Blake Griffin. But on the 4th of July, they finally landed their star, if you will, in signing Utah's uh, Gordon Hayward, two questions for you. Number one, does this distance the Celtics from the Wizards? Like, are, is Boston clearly, you know, better than uh, Washington now after this signing? And two, uh, just how good is Gordon Hayward? You know, we've we've heard there, there are a lot of varying uh, degrees and opinions on Hayward and just how good he is. I'm, quite, I'm curious how you view him in today's NBA. I mean, I think, look, I think that makes Boston and Cleveland, I think that keeps them separate from the rest of the East. Right. If the Wizards uh, aren't able to do anything more than just re-sign Adam. You know, yeah. now, if the Wizards are able to do something else and, 
shake up that lineup and get some other pieces, and that's another conversation. But if we're assuming that Lotto just comes back and they're going to plug in some of their remaining roster spots with some just, you know, minimum guys, then I think that makes Boston, that clearly keeps them ahead of the Wizards. I'm not sure how much farther ahead of the Wizards. Uh, it puts, I think, Boston in the company of Cleveland, but I still think Cleveland, unless, you know, there's some sort of fallout that we don't see coming, I, I still have trouble picking Boston to beat Cleveland in the series. I mean, does, does Gordon Hayward make Boston instead of losing that series 4-1 against Cleveland, win it four games to three against Cleveland? I, I right. have trouble seeing it. I have trouble seeing it that way. I mean, I like him as a player. I think he does a lot of good things. And, um, you know, he could obviously shoot the ball, though. I think from three, he was he was underwhelming this year, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not looking right. at his numbers in front of me. But, uh, I, you know, I have, but I also have an issue with you know looking at his numbers in Utah, where you're playing with a team that's defense defensively oriented and not necessarily an offensive juggernaut. Right. I had somebody uh, send me numbers of Otto compared to Gordon Hayward today and said, "See, Otto is clearly better." And I was like, "That's not the way you judge who's better. It's about what Gordon Hayward's ceiling is yeah. and what Otto's ceiling is." And I think Gordon Hayward has a higher ceiling. So I think he makes Boston better. It gives them I, – I don't know how you feel. Do you think it gives them a, a big three? I don't. Yeah, man, uh, I don't – I don't. well, we don't know what Tatum's going to be, right? He could – if he's, like, you know, the second coming, then, you know, it changes everything, right? And if he hits the ground running, uh, which very seldom rookies do. But as far as Isaiah and Hayward and, I guess, you know, Horford, uh, I don't you, – you've got a lot of nice – pieces you know what i mean but you don't have the centerpiece for a championship roster you know what i mean so boston has talent and they've got all this versatility i will say this they've got flexibility and i would imagine or i would argue that's their biggest asset because they've got so much um there's a possibility that they have both the number one and the number two picks in this upcoming draft next season so they have, they may not have the LeBron, Kevin Durant, but they've got flexibility, which is almost just as good sometimes. Yeah, yeah, they do. And, you know, they have, you know, they got a lot of, um, you know, they're going to be able to build. As long as they do the right things, the draft picks they have, whether they use them or trade them for more established pieces, I think you have to, you know, I don't think you can use all of those picks, number one, because you're not going right. to have the roster spot to use it. So, you know, you use those kind of picks and maybe some role guys you have to throw in on the team for a deal to get you a proven, accomplished veteran guy. You want to get a known commodity for that. Um, because let's face it, when you deal with draft picks, if you hit on 50% of them, you're doing a good job. So, right. um, so yeah, they have a lot of assets to be able to, to do a lot of things. Um, yeah, and so that's the kind of funny thing with Boston. But the other thing is, too, Brad Stevens was able to get a 53-win team out of the squad he right. last year. That's the other way of looking at it. Whatever you think of Gordon Hayward, get Gordon Hayward, that if he plays under Brad Stevens with those other guys, what more can Brad Stevens manufacture out of that group? And I think if maybe almost anyone else was coached other than Brad Stevens, um, I'm really underwhelmed by it. But he, look, that guy can squeeze blood out of a turnip, and he does it. Hey, what did Kelly Olenek have against the Wizards? 26 points. Right. That 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 Brad Stevens has a way of somehow getting guys. It's like have to do that. So I think yeah. if you put all that in the mix with Brad Stevens, I think that it makes it a uh, a really big signing. But I, yeah, I agree though. Talent wise, it's not like a they still don't have a to me a superstar single handedly game changer. They have good role player. They have good player. Al Horford, good player, yeah. right. um, but he's just you know good player. Does a lot of good things. A lot of things well. Um, not dominant at particular any right. aspect of the game. So it's kind of, yeah. So I, that's why I still put Boston behind Cleveland in the East because they still got, Cleveland does, two guys who can boogie one-on-one and there's nothing you can do about it. If all else fails, they can get their buckets. And I don't see Boston necessarily having two guys who can do that when you're in a pinch and things aren't going well for you. Once again, I'm joined by my guy, J. Michael. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at J. Michael CSN. He's the Wizards Insider for CSN Mid-Atlantic. We've been talking heavy basketball, but I'm going to get you out of here. You're a boxing head just like myself. So, matter of fact, if you ever run into J. Michael, make sure you ask him about A.C. Slater. 
story now. <laughs> yeah, man. Ask him about Mario Lopez. I'm not going to ask him to, uh, for you to tell him the story now. But I, I value your opinion when it comes to boxing. Uh, I actually spoke to you during my vacation, uh, during the Ward Kovalev fight. So um, I talked about the Pacquiao horn fight earlier. You can you can talk about the outcome if you want, but I'm more so interested in the entire spectacle and the, the production, the broadcast of the fight, because like I said, the fight wasn't very good. And the outcome obviously left a lot of people really upset. Does that sour? And I mean, Telly Atlas was drunk. Timothy Bradley was scared to speak. He was talking about they're in Argentina when they're in Australia. It was just so bad, right? Does that sour the the entire operation? Because in a matter of weeks, top-ranking ESPN will be broadcasting on different nights, different fights, two of the, the sport's best fighters, like two of the best that the sport has to offer. And unfortunately, I'm worried that the people who were watching the Pacquiao fight, the Pacquiao-Jeff Horn fight, they'll be, you know, they, they'll be turned off because the entire production, the entire procedure was off. Awful. I'm curious as to what you think about that. Well, <laughs> yeah, Teddy. Uh, Teddy was gonna. I thought he was gonna need oxygen. Um, <laughs> yeah, you gotta. You gotta remember, T- Teddy. Yeah, Bradley better be scared of Teddy. T- T- yeah. Teddy's the one guy uh, that. Uh, you don't play you know, with Teddy. Yeah, no. Ask Mike Tyson who is in the pistol in his mouth. Yeah, yeah. Teddy doesn't play, um, and he's got that big scar on his face for a reason because he got mm-hmm. down with some gangster stuff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I thought Pacquiao won the fight. I thought I had it 8-4. Um, the problem I had with the fight, too, is, like, I, I don't really care about where judges are from. I know we get a lot into, well, you know, there's judges from the U.S. I care about whether or not you are an honest and fair judge or not because right. you can have a judge from your own country who's complete crap. happens right. all the time. Um, and so – Look, I, I thought, look, a lot of the cut, the bleeding that Pacquiao had to me, because I think that influenced judges too, it yeah. comes from, that didn't come from legal punches, yeah. right? So that that impacted the perception or the feeling that Horn, I think, was accomplishing more than the judges doing something, gave him right. credit for. Right. So so you got to put that in the equation. The other thing I don't like, and, and this comes back to, this even goes back to the Andre Ward fight against um, Kovalev. Right. Um, and I don't know if I was saying this to you or someone else, that uh, when I was listening to Harold Letterman give his scorecard on a fight, which blew me away, which yeah. is we, we have today's judging has now been fascinated or have come to the conclusion that as long as you come forward and throw punches, you're winning around. Exactly. Yeah. And and I, I don't know where in the hell that came from. Pernell Whitaker would have been winless if today's yep. judges judge fights that way. Yeah. Um, do they realize that? Sometimes some guys fight better going backwards and they're picking the other guy off who's coming for it, that it's actually a strategy. Yeah. And it's it's like is it boxing or is it you give award you award rounds for a guy based on an impression. Yeah. Rather than what happens. So that's my bigger issue with how judging is going straight down the tube. And it's succumbed to popular opinion, which is, Oh, he's coming forward, he's throwing punches, therefore he's winning. Well, right. that's a really one-dimensional way to look at and judge a fight. So that's my biggest issue with it. And I'll tell you this from all of my years. You know, I used to work for Ring Magazine for 10 years, um, been around boxing my whole life. Um, the one thing I do know, at least when I was, you know, in the game every day, was if it was a controversial decision like this, the sad thing is from all the promoters I've been around, from Bob Arum to Don King to Cedric Kushner when he was still alive, um, wow. And every everyone else in between, they kind of in the old school. They actually would have, they wouldn't have mind this because they thought the controversy was a good thing, even though they might have not been happy with the decision. I don't right. know if in today's boxing landscape is the way that that's necessarily a good thing. I think you're right that it could hurt the product overall going forward. But there there is still, I think, a, an idea that you can build off that controversy to something bigger. So the question is, is that short-term gain worth the long-term um, um, perception that maybe you'll create? And, right. you know, I, I yeah, so so for me, I just think it's the way judging is gone. I don't think it's necessarily corrupt judges. I think him being at home helped this and the, the mood and of the fans rooting for their guy 
maybe right. influence the judge a little bit. I don't think it's necessarily corrupt. I just have I take issues in my mind with the way they just judge these days, and I don't I don't like it. And by the way, neither one of those guys want anything to do with Terrence Crawford. We know better than that. Exactly, exactly. Once again, I'm joined by my guy Jay Michael. We're talking about the Jeff Horn, Manny Pacquiao fight from this past Saturday, and you know you hit the like, Terrence Crawford. Bud kills both of these guys. Arrow kills both of these guys. Keith kills both of these guys. Um, but you talked about perception, and I think that absolutely hurt Manny in in this regard. Uh, not just because you know the blood and the you know Horn was the more aggressive fighter. Like you said, it doesn't mean he was the more effective fighter. However, I think, and it's just human condition, we know Manny to be a future Hall of Famer, a legendary fighter, and you see him in the ring with a guy who's, who, doesn't, who clearly doesn't deserve a title shot, who clearly is not uh, a high-level boxer. And Manny, no matter how you score the fight, there is no doubt he struggled and he looked sloppy against Horn. So... You know, that hurts him. The perception is, like, why is Manny having such a problem with a guy who's been on the on the canvas three of his last four times? And, again, it doesn't matter either way because both these guys aren't top welterweights anymore, Manny included. They get annihilated by the t- the, the top of the class, probably even the middle right. of the class. No, there's no doubt about it. I, I don't think either. And, and, that, and that's the thing, too, though, like, in boxing, that casual fan – is probably thinks that Juwan and Pacquiao are the two best guys. Right. You know, because of, you know, you Because they have a belt. Yeah, you throw in a belt, and to me, you throw the belts out. That has nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Everybody has a belt now. Yeah, everybody's got one. I mean, come on, man. You know, boxing, it's kind of funny. I think boxing is the forerunner. Whenever you hear people criticize boxing for all its champions, I say, mm-hmm. well, boxing caught, caught places, I don't know, like college football that you can have, you know, 150 bowl games bowls. and everything. Everybody gets a bowl championship, and you know it used to. Be, remember when it used to be when Bobby Bowden would take, hey, taking Florida State to 18 straight bowl games. That actually used to mean something. Right. Does that does that mean what it used to mean? No, it's right. the same concept. So right. I think in general, just this whole thing with you know um, the belts have made people think that maybe Pacquiao and Horn are the two best guys. But yeah, look, it, it, it's not even close. They don't want to yeah. mess with any of those guys you just mentioned. Yeah. Um, and you know, I. I uh, it, to me, Pacquiao's career took a downturn the moment he started, you know, like trying to be in politics or being a politician exactly, yeah. in, in boxing. Boxing, to me, is the one sport you can't do both. You, you can't you can play. Fight, you can either yeah. fight or you're not. When Roy Jones started to go downhill. Y'all must have forgot. I <laughs> think he was making records. He thought he was, he, he thought, he, he thought he was Dr. Dre making records and, and, and cutting lyrics. And if you look at Roy Jones and how he started the downturn, Against yeah. Eric Harding and all of those guys, that's when he was doing all this. Y'all must have forgotten that. Yeah. You know, same thing. Same thing. Yeah. And, oh, by the way, it was Floyd Mayweather. We had the little patch of fights where he didn't look too great. Same thing. He thought he was a yeah. record producer to do with Filthy Yeah, yeah. You know, you're right about leave that. that. Leave that alone, man. Focus on what got you there. Yeah. <laughs> all right, man. That's my guy, Jay Michael. Obviously, he knows the sweet science of boxing, but he's the Wizards insider. So make sure you follow him on Twitter for boxing, basketball, and everything else in between. He's at J. Michael CSN. You're going to want to make sure you follow him for all the offseason news and notes from the Wizards and other teams. He'll also be in Summer League in Vegas coming up. So you Wizards fans out there, make sure you follow him. Again, J. Michael CSN. Also, check out his podcast along with my guy, Chase Hughes. It's called Wizards Tip-Off. You find that wherever you get your podcast, check that out. J. Michael, man, thanks for joining me on the Quarterly Report. All right, I'll run anytime, man. All right, once again, big thanks to my guy, Jay Michael. Three quarters are in the books. We're going to finish up strong by stepping out of the sporting arena and into rankings and lists. It's a topic that you're not going to want to miss, so let's go. Fourth quarter. So this past weekend, you know, it was a holiday weekend. Everybody's chilling with their family. Uh, As you heard, it was a big weekend for NBA free agency. Uh, You may have noticed, but just in case you didn't, the website 538, you know, run by Nate Silver, put out a list. It was the top 25 most rewatchable movies of all time. Now, anytime, if you're like me, anytime there is a list of rankings of movies, television series, uh, artists, musicians, or whatever, I already know or I prepare myself that there's going to be some type of slant. I- I'll just leave it like that. I know that there's... 
it's, it's almost like, you know, the two Americas debate. You know what I mean? So I knew off top there were going to be a lot of films on this list that I would not relate to. However, even coming in, knowing that I would be disappointed, this list somehow failed to hit that bar. I'm not going to read you all of the movies on this list, but I will say this, that the 25th movie on the most rewatchable movies of all time list is the Avengers. <laughs> so that lets you know off rip where this is going. They had Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter in their top 10 ahead of movies like Goodfellas, Pulp Fiction, and Shawshank Redemption. I will repeat that Lord of the Rings was ahead of Shawshank Redemption. Harry Potter was one spot behind it. So all you Dungeon and Dragons nerds out there, I'm sure you guys are rejoicing, but the rest of us are like, come on, Joe, that disqualifies the entire thing. So I'm a man of the people. I saw this list and quickly realized that it was trash, but it was a good idea. You know, so like everyone, you know, the history of you, of humanity someone can have a bad or have a great idea but it's up to someone better or someone else to improve upon the idea so that's exactly what i did for you all the good people the good listeners of the quarterly report i came up with the actual best top 25 rewatchable movies of all time okay now it's important that i make this clear these are the most rewatchable movies so these aren't my favorite movies in order in fact Many of my favorite movies aren't even on this list. Um, and all of these movies aren't even movies that I consider my favorites. However, when they're on, they have, you know, a quality that makes you want to watch them over and over again. For instance, Forrest Gump is on 538's list. Now, if you listen to the show, I, I spoke about this in an earlier episode. You know, I'm trying to grow and to become more in touch with my feelings. I'm not there yet. Some people would consider me a stoic or, you know, I... It's just, I don't have a full range of emotions. So, you know, Forrest Gump doesn't really connect with me. Like it may connect with other people who are fully in touch with their emotions, you know, to each his own, do your thing. However, that movie, to me at least, and I would assume to everybody, is emotionally draining. I don't want to watch Forrest Gump over and over again. It doesn't make me happy. You know what I mean? Like, why do you want to watch that movie over and over again? And you can appreciate, you know, how good it is or whatever, how, you know, do your thing. That doesn't mean you want to watch it again and again. You know, Glory is a great movie. Glory is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's not on my top 25 list. That's that depressing. It makes you sad. So with that little bit of criteria, I'm going to give you my list going 25 up to number one. I'm not going to bore you with, uh, you know, reasons behind everyone, but I'll give you a little bit of a, a little nugget, but as to why certain movies are on this list. So I'm going to start with number 25. This movie actually wasn't on uh, the 538 list. It's the Empire Strikes Back. You know, I am, you know, I enjoy the Star Wars movies. I can get into it. You know, I'm not like crazy, like, you know, but I enjoy them. And I think we all would agree if you've seen any of them. Empire Strikes Back is by far the best of the entire movies. You know, I enjoy the Star Wars movies. My daughter enjoys them. Uh, so, you know, it's good generationally. My dad liked it. And it, it's, an, it's an enjoyable film. So Empire Strikes Back is number 25. Number 24, Tombstone. You know, it's one of the better Westerns, at least, that I've ever seen. It's entertaining. It's, it's got the shoot 'em up style. And anytime Tombstone is on... It's hard to turn it off. You know what I mean? Val Kilmer probably has never been good in any other movie. This was, you know, he hit the pinnacle early on in his career. Shout outs to him. Tombstone is number 24. 23. Like I said, 538, the 25th movie was a superhero movie. It was the Avengers. The greatest superhero movie of all time is The Dark Knight. Dark Knight is number 23. I don't care what it is. If it's on TNT, it's on TNT a lot. On those Saturdays or Sunday afternoons where you don't have anything to do, it's rainy outside, Dark Knight is on, you're chilling and you're watching it. You know what I'm saying? You're going to enjoy it. It's the best superhero movie of all time. It's got humor. It's got, like, drama, action, the whole nine. Dark Knight 23. 22, Rocky 3. Rocky 3, Clubber Lang, man. Come on, Mr. T, 
Mr. T, between Mr. T and Apollo bringing Rocky into the hood gym, I think they were in Chicago. Come on, Slim. Now, Rocky Three is kind of corny. You know, they running on the beach and they hugging each other in slow motion. Apollo and Rocky, that was kind of, you know, it's corny. You know what I'm saying? But, you know, that was the movie I think that introduced Eye of the Tiger. The whole nine, man. Rocky Three. you know, again, you're not turning away from it. You know, Mr. Ting, Mr. T himself makes that movie. Clubber Lang is awesome. And it's the whole story of Rocky and Apollo. They fight the third time, but you don't see who wins. It ends them. I mean, come on, man. Rocky Three, baby. Rocky Three, 22. 21. Now, again, I told you all, this isn't necessarily how or the list of my favorite movies. Because 21, Boomerang, to me, is one of the top five greatest movies of all time. I don't care who you are. If you want to argue with me, holler at me. We can go ahead and scrap it out over that. Boomerang is one of the greatest movies of all time. But it's 21 on my list of most rewatchable films. Boomerang is classic, man. I mean, you got Eddie, David Allegrier, and Martin in the same movie with probably one of the greatest scenes of all time, Pops and John Witherspoon on the Thanksgiving scene. If you haven't seen Boomerang, you're a loser in life. You should go ahead and do that right now. But Boomerang, whenever it's on, it's one of the greatest movies of all time. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's the 21st most rewatchable film. Number 20, when I was a kid, man, I can't tell you how much I love the Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid. Sweep the leg. I mean, come on, man. Cobra Kai. I, I still to this day have a Cobra Kai t-shirt, man. I had When I was a child, I had a Karate Kid birthday party. Y'all don't understand how much I love this movie. Karate Kid, the original. Slim. Everybody knows about the crane kick. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a movie that families can like. You're a teenager. You like it for other reasons than your, your, you know, your child, your little brother, whatever. And as an adult, you have a different appreciation of it. The Karate Kid is the one you're not turning. You're not going to turn it. You know what I'm saying? Wax on, wax off, crank kick, sweep the leg. Come on, baby. Karate Kid is the 20th greatest movie of all time. Number 19. Or not greatest, most rewatchable movie of all time. Number 19, Money Talks. Money Talks, a lot of people love Friday. And I get that. You know, Friday is like a cult classic. But let's say Money Talks is an hour and 30 minutes. The first hour and 10 minutes of Money Talks is some of the funniest cinema of all time. Chris Tucker at his prime, him and Charlie Sheen running around doing all God knows what. And of course, it birthed Vic Damone Jr. Again, if you haven't seen that movie, do yourself a favor. But anytime Money Talks is on, especially on like cable so they don't bleep out the cursing. Oh, my God. You, I mean, come on. This is Chris Tucker at his prime, at his peak. Money Talks is number 19. 18 is Home Alone for obvious reasons. There used to be a time when Home Alone would come on every Thanksgiving, and every Thanksgiving I would watch it. Again, it's a family film. You know, it's a basic principle, but it's really funny, and it's good, and, you know, you enjoy it. You know what I'm saying? You you take it for what it is. I have never turned off Home Alone whenever it's on. It doesn't come on nearly as much as it used to, but number 18, Home Alone. Number 17, Training Day. Need I say more? Number 16. Now, a lot of y'all may not have seen this movie. I, lo- I love the fact that the listeners of my show, it's a wide variety of people, you know what I'm saying? So half of you all know the five heartbeats. You know it word for word. You can sing the songs. You know the whole story like the back of your hand. And half of you probably have never even heard of the five heartbeats. That's your loss. The five heartbeats is one of the best rewatchable movies of all time because, again, you're singing songs, but it's not really a musical. It's loosely based on The Temptations. It's all types of stuff. You got family drama. You got all this other stuff. Five heartbeats. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on it. Those of you who have seen it know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who haven't, do yourself a favor and check it out. Number 15. Again, this is not an order of my favorite movies because number 15 is my favorite movie of all time. Bad Boys. Again, you got Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, Peak of Their Humor, Mike Lowry, Marcus Brunette, Slim. Again, if it's on, if it's on like a premium channel, HBO or whatever, where you can curse, it it's the perfect blend of comedy and action. My favorite movie of all time and the 15th most rewatchable film. 14, The Matrix. That was on 538's list. You know, the first one. And, you know, I don't have to really say that's a film that most of you all have seen and enjoyed. 
The Matrix is super dope. It, you know, after The Matrix came out, everybody was making videos, doing the, like, the Neo joint. The Matrix, like, kind of changed everything. The Matrix is super dope. I don't really have to, to tell you too much about that. Number 13, come on, baby. Terminator 2. Terminator 2, Slim. I still remember going to the theater watching John Connor. Shout out to Budnick. I don't know if y'all remember. He, had a, he was John Connor's little homeboy. Uh, salute your shorts. Old school 80 babies know what I'm talking about. Everything about Terminator 2. You know, some, some of those 90s action movies don't live up. You know, you watch like Independence Day and you're like, man, these graphics are awful. And you watch all these films that came out in the 90s where at the time you thought, man, this is amazing. Terminator 2 still lives up to this day. The greatest action movie of all time, man. Terminator 2 is amazing. Anytime Terminator 2 is on, you're not turning the channel. Terminator 2 is the 13th most rewatchable film of all time. Number 12, Goodfellas. Maybe one of the greatest films of all time. Goodfellas, I struggle with this. Goodfellas' job maybe needs to be a little higher. So if you have any issues with the list, it's, it's probably going to be why Goodfellas is so low. But I had Goodfellas higher than 538. You understand? So, look, if you, everyone's seen Goodfellas. Everyone knows how entertaining. Goodfellas is like being on speed, I would assume, from the moment the film starts. It does not let go. It just goes and it accelerates. Oh, it just keeps on going. The movie doesn't let up. There are no, you know, valleys. It's just full speed acceleration. That movie is so enjoy enjoyable. It's the 12th most, 12th best rewatchable film of all time. Number 11, The Sixth Sense. There's another movie like this on my list a little higher. But, you know, The Sixth Sense, it rewards kind of rewatching it. You know what I mean? It, it incentivizes it. Because when you watch it the first time, you're like, oh, the biggest. You know, the big the big uh, surprise ending. So you want to rewatch it to see if you can notice the clues that they left before and see, like, if you can, if you, can uh, you know, discover this huge surprise earlier. You know what I mean? So it incentivizes you rewatching it. Uh, it's really good to rewatch just for that reason, especially if you're in a larger group to be like, hey, you know, I, that's why I should have known. So it's kind of fun to rewatch The Sixth Sense. Number 10. I probably have seen this movie more than I've seen any other movie in my entire life. Major pain, super slept on. I can't wait till my daughter's a little bit older because there's some cursing in it, but I can't wait till my daughter sees this movie the first time. I'm gonna watch it with her. I love this movie so much. Major pain is the 10th greatest rewatchable film of all time. Number nine, The Godfather, the first one. Need I say more? This was also on the 538 list, so, you know, they were okay with this. Number eight, Shawshank Redemption. One of the best movies of all time. Again, I don't need to talk up Shawshank. This also was on 538. We all understand how great of a story, how great of a movie uh, this was. Number seven, Pulp Fiction. Also on 538's list. It was most people's kind of coming, coming out party for Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson was amazing in this film. He still should have won an Oscar. I can't believe he didn't for that film. Pulp Fiction... You know, it, it just kind of changed the game. You know what I mean? It's one of the best movies of all time. Number six, Die Hard. Die Hard is great because for whatever reason, there's this ongoing debate on whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie or not. So it's fun to rewatch Die Hard with people and be like, yo, this is or this isn't a Christmas movie. Die Hard is amazing. I love this film. Me and my homeboys, we got like a special connection to Die Hard. Die Hard is number six, just outside the top five on this list number five the fifth best most rewatchable film of all time i'm gonna get you sucker okay again half of y'all love this movie know everything about this movie like the back of your hand chris rock talking about some ribs you know what i'm saying jim brown keenan ivory reigns this was like you know the wayans brothers have done have made a career off of doing like kind of uh parodies of like you know popular movies like genres or whatever this was like the first one. It was Keenan Ivory Rain, Keenan Ivory Wayne's, excuse me, doing a parody on all these black exploitation movies. But it was so funny, and it's the best one. It was the first one. It's the best one. I'm gonna get you sucker again. If you haven't seen it, you got to do yourself a favor. This movie, you you literally cannot turn it off when it's on. It's that funny, and it's hard because comedies. It's hard to stay fresh. You know what I mean? And there are two more on this list. Two more comedies. It's hard to stay fresh, and you'll see with the top two, you know, why they're so special. 
Number four, usual suspects. Again, much like Sixth Sense, it it incentivizes you to watch it again. So you can see all the clues that they leave behind. And you try to watch it to see like, oh, man, to see if you can spot the big reveal at the end earlier. And this is just a dope movie. So usual suspects, number four. Number three, a third most rewatchable movie of all time, Tropic Thunder. This movie is one of the funniest movies of all time, and I did not expect it to be this funny. I love this movie so much, Slim. And then, and again, it's hard for comedies to stay fresh. You know, Hangover was funny the first time you see it. You see Hangover the third time, it's not nearly as funny because you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Same with Anchorman, same with all these comedies or whatever. But for some reason, Tropic Thunder, that thing does not get stale. It is hilarious. So that's number three. Number two, Gladiator. Gladiator is a dope movie. It's Even if you're not an action fan and it's violent, and it's got everything. Gladiator, again, you can't turn it off when it comes on television on the weekend, TNT or whatever. Gladiator is number two. And the number one movie, this was easy. This was, the fact that this movie wasn't even on 538's list was enough to disqualify it. Everybody who saw that list, the first reaction they had was, how is Coming to America not on the list? And not only should it not be on the list, Coming to America should be on everybody's top three or five on most rewatchable films. Coming to America is one of the best movies of all time. It's Eddie, Eddie Murphy at his apex. He's playing different characters. He's in a barbershop. He's talking about Joe Lewis. He's talking about Slim. Come on, baby. We talking about how many times have you heard of Soul Glow? Sexual Chocolate. Like, think about all the quotables that is in Coming to America. You know what I mean? And this movie is, what, 30 some odd, almost 30 years old? Hands down, the best, the most rewatchable film of all time, Coming to America. That's number one. That's my list. It's better than any list you can come up with. I dare you to challenge it. Challenge it. Send me your list so I can laugh at you trying to question me. You understand? If you do want to send me those lists, hit me up on Twitter. I'm at Armon, A-R-M-O-N underscore Lee, L-E-E. Also, send them lists over to The Quarterly Show. That's the show's Twitter handle, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E Show. That's my time this week. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my guy, Jay Michael, for breaking down boxing and the offseason. And we'll catch you next week on The Quarterly Report.